An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our guest, Andres Vinelli. Andres is the chief economist at the CFA Institute, leaning its research function which puts Andres squarely in the bullseye of how investing's most prestigious institution thinks about regulation, capital market issues, and standard setting. Prior to joining the CFA Institute, he was a vice president for economic policy at the Center for American Progress, a leading Washington think tank. And before that, he was the chief economist for not one, but two world-class regulatory bodies, the PCAOB, America's audit regulator, and FINRA, which regulates brokers and exchanges and is the largest private sector regulatory body in the world. Andres is also a longtime adjunct professor at Georgetown Business School with a focus on capital markets and financial crises. In other words, Andres is a wonderfully well-informed, experienced, and expert economist who understands the intersections of capital markets, regulation, policy, the real economy and society. Welcome, Andres. Hi, John. Thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, I don't think you can see it in the podcast, but I'm blushing a little bit now <laughs> with that introduction. But it's it's good to be here, John. <laughs> Very it's good, to, be good to have you. So, so let me ask you, what's your origin story? We 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 often find that interesting people have had interesting lives. They come from different uh, environments. How did you become the person you are today? <laughs> so that's a good one. I, I, I'm originally from Argentina. I grew up in interesting times. You know, one of my first memories as a kid was the return of democracy in Argentina. Then there were um, some important economic bumps that I think helped uh, define me a little bit. I lived through two hyperinflations, basically in the very early 90s. And that got me very interested in studying economics, you know, how to explain what was going on. Interesting times, right? So, so, so that's what I did. I studied economics and then decided to keep on studying, always interested in the role of uh, government and the interaction between government and, and the economy and markets and, and society. So I, uh, I, I wanted to continue my studies. I did uh, uh, a master's degree in, in public policy and. Enjoyed it so much that I stayed for the uh, PhD and started to focus on the relationship between markets and governments in the context of financials and the financial sector. And one thing led to another. I, I wrote my dissertation on, on something called microfinance, which is the provision of small loans to regular people, usually small time entrepreneurs, right? Which was a lot of fun. Also ended up studying mo more bigger finance, if you may, right? The, the capital markets and banking and all that. And that ultimately led down the path of, of being a 
financial market uh, economist type of person. So that's the story of origin, John. Let me start a series of big overarching economic and regulatory questions. First, from the point of view of American society as a whole, what does the capital markets get right and what needs improvement? Okay, talk about big questions. I think there's a lot there. Let me focus on two things, one big and, and one a little smaller. The big one is how do we handle a system that it's more unstable than one would like it? to be becomes a, a part of the new reality then maybe once a decade or so we get some kind of big trouble in the capital markets and the markets go down and not without disturbance on Main Street, be it the end of the dot-com bubble, the recent situation with, with inflation or the banks collapsing in the great financial crisis. They all have in common this tendency once in a while for markets to go down and, and frankly, the government to step in and do something about it. So that's one topic in the, in the sense that, that what's right about it is that we seem to address the problems and that we provide a fix. It might not be the best fix or might not be perfect, but, but we have learned to cope with these episodes. But there's something that feels wrong, at least in my mind about it, which is that this intervention or bailouts sometimes don't feel right. They feel like we're just bailing out people who are very well off for the sake of society, but there seems to be a little accountability in that process. So that's one issue that I think we go that we both get right and wrong, depending on how you look at it, because we fix the problem, but in a way that doesn't feel quite right. The other, the perhaps smaller in comparison issue is that of we have a very efficient financial market system, I would say, that serves entrepreneurs and investors well, but there's a little bit of a tendency to create things that are overly complicated and complex, I would argue. And, and that's something that, that it's perhaps unnecessary in the sense that, that it asks people who are not necessarily trained as you are, John, or many of the people in the audience, or perhaps myself, you know, well-versed into the ins and outs and finance. Well, is that reasonable to expect that, that regular everyday Americans choose their 401 investments with, with great precision? That to me, it's a little bit of questionable. It's asking too much. It's like asking someone to design a house. Well, are you an architect? Are you an engineer? And that is something that, that sometimes goes wrong. Is that a market question or a financial literacy question? <laughs> John, I, I think it's an incentives question. That's how I would put it. In the sense that the people who are offering us financial services, they are the experts. They know a lot. And the investor, on the other hand, may or may not know a lot. And the, the provider of the financial services limited incentives sometimes to, to fully articulate what the consequences are. It's all about incentives that we have and to basically get into how to solve incentives. Well, probably you need both the marketplace and, and policymakers to, to come up with creative ways of assessing that issue. I want to get to policy in a second, but I want to go back to what you said about, um, an unstable market and what happens when it goes down. 
markets should go down, right? I mean, markets shouldn't be monotonal up. And and yet, as you point out, they seem to have this um, reaction, this 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 linkage to Main Street economic conditions, and and we continue to create what I guess economists would call moral hazard that uh, people think that they're going to get bailed out. How how do we allow markets to go up and down? without requiring these huge bailouts. Sometimes I feel like we're just an addict saying, give me more of this stuff. I need more. I need more. Um, <laughs> because I can't, I can't come down off the high. <laughs> right. It, it's like zombie movies. They, they want more brains. And no, no matter how many brains you put their way, they want more. You're absolutely right. Markets should go up and down. And I think there's, personally, there's a lot of value in, in prices going down once in a while. That's why I think that sometimes we, we ignore the value that short sellers provide in finding anomalous prices and potentially frauds in the marketplace. So it's, it's valuable. What I'm not saying is that markets shouldn't go up, down to somewhere close to what people might call fundamental levels, although who knows what it, those are exactly, but when we need intervention is it's. Basically, when the market is, is, is breaking, not because prices are down, but because the, all liquidity is, is gone from a certain pocket of the, the marketplace. Of course, the challenge there is you want to intervene when, when it's a liquidity problem, not when there's a solvency problem. And hence, the catch. It's hard to tell on, on the fly, but it, it needs to, to be done. How do we get to a better place because it seems like we have gotten so used to that that uh, that the market almost has a put and the, the, the famous fed put you know means that if things go wrong uncle sam through the fed will do something about it and, and put a floor on the on the market which is a pernicious idea but i can't blame people or the markets for thinking that way a different part of financial policy. You have been at two major regulatory agencies. Uh, let's talk about regulation for a second, because economists, of course, have debated the correct yeah. role and amount of regulation for literally centuries, from Adam Smith through Coase and Friedman to today. So how do you define the Vanelli normative role of regulation and in the capital markets? What's optimal? All right. Let me build up on the two ideas that, that we were chatting about a few minutes ago. I would start by in two places. One is sort of the system stability aspect of things. And the second one is the investor protection. Let's start with investment protection. I think we need to recognize that there are uh, very large asymmetries of information in this business. The financial services sector, it's unique in the sense that there's very large levels of financial information asymmetry. And what that means is it's many things, right? You look at a, at a bank and you say, well, what's going on in here? We know that most of the stuff that sits in balance sheets of the bank, either on the asset side or the liability side, are not numbers, they're estimates. Okay, so 
all all of that stuff is estimate. Well, who's making the estimates and are they are they using the right inputs for estimates, right? Of course, people who work in the institutions know a little more, but the, the, the customers less. And that goes from that basic fact to the kinds of products that are offered. Well, you know, how, do people know how to price stuff, how to assess the risks of, of complex products? Generally speaking, I would say no. <laughs> and, and that's something that, that it's, I think, under-recognized. On a, on a practical level in, in, the, in the industry, there's not enough efforts in my book to translate into more common language. And sometimes when appropriate, make products less complex, right? There's, there's a tendency to add bells and whistles that I think at the end of the day does investors a disservice. So that, that's my theory of, uh, <laughs> financial regulation, as you might put it. The second uh, leg is that of market stability. There is a need for a, a lender of last resort, you know, the central bank, the federal reserve. And, uh, and that's something that, that it's already recognized. And of course it comes with the other side of that moon is, is that of the bailouts and, and how to manage those. So those are the two main legs that I would proposed, John. Given that normative framework, what do you think regulation gets right today? And if you were, you know, poof, the czar of financial regulation in the United States, what would be your top one or two priorities to change? We are working on a little bit of a legacy system in the sense that we're very much about disclosure and Pretty much as long as you disclose stuff and there are certain, you know, there's rules and there's jurisprudence, but more or less, as long as you do right by disclosure, you are a-okay. We developed accounting and auditing, assurance and all that. We have a system that works quite well on disclosure of those numbers. Okay. Now, fast forward to today, are those the, the inputs that we need as investors? and a society to allocate capital. I think it's a limited story because there's a lot of talk about non-financial information that, that investors are looking. People are taking pictures of a Walmart parking lot to see what's going on in terms of traffic, or people are using advanced software to analyze you know, how CEOs talk about whether they had a good quarter or not. People are worrying about the impact of climate change on, on, on the business models of given companies, or what's the relationship of a company to their, the communities where they inhabit, or how are they investing in human capital for those employees? Well, very few of those questions are today embedded in the sort of the regular diet of information that the marketplace gets as you know very well, John, because you have written extensively, including a book on this. But I think that, that what that means is that first we have to get all of those institutions working so they become information that investors can digest. Okay. And second, we have to find, find ways to manage the complexity of all that. So I would say while we enlarge the type of information that we sent to the marketplace through better disclosures, we have the twin challenge of having to 
make the the information more readily accessible and digestible by investors. And that is, is something that it's a continuous struggle, but we need to really get there, right? It's, for instance, take the case of mutual funds. I mean, now we have like a one pager on mutual funds where you can like at a glance, look at what are the expenses, what's the historical performance, the key indicators for making a good decision. Well, we have to extend all that to the rest of the marketplace. I think that's a, that's a good challenge ahead. Let me ask one specific regulatory question or legal regulatory question, and it is a uh, a personal pet peeve. Okay, okay. Um, the United States has a law which requires regulation must, in many cases for federal agencies, consider cost-benefit analysis. And that's, uh, it's one of those things that sounds like motherhood and apple pie. How could anyone object to cost-benefit analysis, right? It's logical. But in fact, many regulations, including I think some thoughtful ones, have been invalidated by the courts for failing to adequately consider cost-benefit. But isn't there a flaw in the basic premise of doing cost-benefit analysis for many regulations? And what I mean by that is, look, the cost is easily measured. It affects a specific entity. Someone has to pay it. For instance, you just mentioned disclosure of different types of company information. The company has to have an MIS system. It has to have a disclosure control. It has to go through and you can calculate what it costs the company to present this information because the cost is isolated to a small number of people or entities that bear that cost. But the benefits are always more diffuse. They include things like trust in the market or better information in the marketplace or people feeling that trading is fair. And so I think we've sometimes taken the idea of cost-benefit analysis, a good idea for some purposes, we can measure costs and benefits and almost fetishize it to the point where we try to apply it to situations for which it's ill-suited. So my question is, as a result, do we wind up protecting the entities that would bear the costs rather than empowering society or the markets, which would benefit, albeit broadly and thinly, in ways that are hard to measure? Let me see if I can take it by parts. First, the, the issue of costs and benefits. I think you are right in the sense that that, that benefit in this particular f- field of human endeavor, benefits are diluted among the millions and cannot be directly observed very easily. And so that seems like an insurmountable barrier. You can move past it, but it's it's something that we need to recognize. Not that it cannot be measured. But it's very difficult to attribute sometimes a particular action, regulatory action, to trust (laughs) or to the risk premium on certain assets, which is how economists can can look at this. So uh, if you were working on a particular ruling on, say, accounting, whether that will enhance or restrict trust, you have to make some assumptions, I will put it. So... I think that that's, that's right. It can be surmounted, but it's difficult. I think that if you, if you have some facts with the initial proposal, say for a rule, if you put some facts in there and you put some hypotheses that are backed by the state of science, 
you can ask better questions to the marketplace and for people who comment than if you say, hey, we want to do this, please react. Open-ended questions like that are, are not so useful. It's much better to say, look, we want to change this thing. And there's two things that could happen and one possible and intended consequence. Do you have any data on that or theories on that or experience? I think those questions should be able to uh, produce better reactions and more interesting reactions that, that policymakers then can use and apply their own judgment for the rulemaking. So what, what do you think, John? Am I crazy? Um, I'm supposed to be asking the questions, but since you asked the question, I think there are two things. I think there are uses both for open-ended questions and specific questions. In your specific case, I think the, the issue is at the current time, as we record this in fall of 2022, we have politicians, some of whom don't care about facts. And so it's very difficult to have fact-based regulatory initiatives when people are trying to put through regulatory initiatives to prove that their narrative version of the world is correct, rather than looking at what the world is, taking the facts and trying to deal with it. So in an ideal world, yes, if you want to know my belief of how to make better regulation, it's pretty simple. No one who has been a Hill staffer for the last five years should be allowed on a regulatory body because that's who gets appointed down to the SEC or the PCOB or the FTC or the FEC or any of the other places. And they basically know how to talk their party's line and argument and aren't concerned with nuances or contrafactual indications in the real world. And I think we were much better off. We had political parties, but we took our regulators from the real world rather than from Hill staffers. And so I think one of the reasons that you have a death of fact-based regulatory analysis is that everyone's trained in political narrative and not so much in fact. But I'm supposed to be asking you the questions, so I will ask you a question. When you were at the Center for American Progress, you joined with 70 other economists to argue for an increase in federal infrastructure spending. And you argued that it would not only be economically stimulative, but also would improve productivity, which over time is, of course, how society improves their standard of living. Now, as long as I can remember, that has been the position of the broad mainstream economists. But unlike the golden age of the mid-20th century, when America built interstate highway system, the space program, housing under the GI Bill, and a host of other systemic infrastructure improvements, infrastructure spending for the past decade has been more episodic at best. Why is it so hard for the United States to build out world-class infrastructure at the scale and speed that economists recommend when virtually everyone agrees that over time it improves standard of living? Our political institutions are not responding to society's demands in the same way that they used to. We have, perhaps to state the obvious, a very highly polarized political environment where people and the political system don't work across the aisles the way they, they used to. I mean, this is not to idealize the past, but to 
stay the simple facts that now people follow the the party line and the party lines are becoming more and more disconnected from each other. And I fear from the median voter out there. I think that that has done a disservice to our capacity to think through big issues and, and address big issues of, of society. John, you just mentioned one of the big issues for our society, which is the incapacity to to engage in large investments in the future. Of course, now we we have managed to to get some pretty big bills uh, out there. But I think that the problem stands in general, regardless of the success. And this, you know, it's both in the Trump and the Biden administration. We did some pretty good things around COVID relief, I would th- I would think. But the problem stands that that's the exception. And when the house is burning, we agreed to do stuff. And I think Churchill once said it, right? You can count on the Americans to do the right thing. <laughs> uh, what we'll see at the end, if anything else fails, right? Or at the end of the process. And that's what we tend to do. I think polarization, our system of, of checks and balances has served us very well for centuries now, but now we are, it puts us in deadlock. It is hard to do the hard stuff in that, in that system. I, of course, I don't have a solution for that problem. We don't listen to each other the way that we used to. And I think that there's also a, a, a bias this space for short-term thinking for politicians, but also for the marketplace, right? We're, we became a more the quarter to quarter market and some extent society. And in the lack of consistent investment in the future, it's, it's only natural if you want to, right? If you think about it, if you're obsessed about the last 15 minutes, the last quarter or what's going on on Twitter, it's very hard to think through the big problems of society. So I think those are two structural issues that I would point to. So I will feed right into the short-termism and say, let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? <laughs> well, I, I love to hang out with my friends and my family and very, very friend-oriented guy. Um, I also like to listen to music. Music has been a lifelong passion. I always love music and recently learned, started to learn how to play an instrument. So I enjoy doing those things. What instrument do you play? Now I play the guitar. Yeah. A little bass too, but very poorly, very poorly, John. What type of music do you listen to? And is it the same type you play? <laughs> um, I, I like to listen to, to rock, especially what people call alternative indie type rock. I also like to to listen to, well, frankly, all types of music, jazz. I love jazz. I love jazz from the fifties, but of course, playing jazz is a whole different ballpark. So I stick to, you know, the four tone <laughs> songs, this six chords perhaps, and something like that. But you know, jazz I've tried, but I've, I've learned my limitations quite quickly. <laughs> what are you reading right now? <laughs> I'm reading a book about the head of the French resistance, General de Gaulle. And I started reading it because I've, you know, as many people, I'm a World War II buff and, and, and I ended up like reading books about Churchill and the Quinn and all that. And I realized that 
I knew very little about what was going on on the, on the French side of things. And sort of fascinating. The idea of like, how do you fight when you are clear, clearly the weakest uh, of all parties? That's, that's always fascinated me. Last question. If you could magically talk to everyone in the world and whisper something into the ear, what would you tell them? Uh, I would say, please try and talk with people who you don't agree with, people who are different than you. I think we're not doing enough of that these days. Thank you. Our guest today on Outside In has been Andres Vanelli, the chief economist at the CFA Institute. Some thoughtful takes on capital markets, regulation, and why we can't get stuff done because we don't listen to other people. Thanks, Andres. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. A pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.